Hey everybody, in Serial Killer Country, my name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into the lives and psyches of the killers we love to learn about. Each week, Brian and I find a true crime story that resonated with us, and then I discuss one well-known or lesser-known killer, go deep into their childhood lives, methodology, and most importantly, how they got caught. And then we'll get a little spooky, and we will learn something about cryptids or the supernatural with Brian. Yeah. Before we start, I want to let you know that our Patreon is live. There are four tiers from $5 to $50 that offer exclusive VIP content just for our biggest fans. You can support us by going to patreon.com when killers get caught or buying merch on our website at www.whenkillersgetcaught.com. And this week in true crime, I want to talk about a story that popped up on my feed a couple days ago. And boy, is this headline a doozy. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Missing Alabama woman, Christina Nance, found dead inside of a police van and a police parking lot. I read about this. It was in, I think we we're in the same true crime group. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I am like, what? Well, in the true crime group I was in, it only showed a picture of the girl. Yeah, right, and right. And so then I was like, wait just a moment here. And I had to go look up the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was on, and the article I'm reading from is from on Inside Edition. And apparently, as of October 18th, they've done an autopsy that says that Christina Nance did not die from trauma or foul play, but her toxicology reports are pending. Now, Christina Nance's family want answers as to why this 29-year-old woman who has been missing now for two weeks was found inside of a prisoner transport van parked in a busy parking lot outside of the Huntsville Police Department. Her remains were discovered five days after her relatives reported her disappearance. A police officer noticed a pair of shoes near the vehicle and found her body inside. Uh, This came that information came from Huntsville Deputy Police Chief Dwayne McCarver and he was as he was speaking to reporters on Friday all city vehicles should remain locked anytime they are not in use or occupied sometimes you have you said you just have to say that was something that shouldn't have happened it did after the discovery police have been just like locked in looking at all of the hours of surveillance footage right yeah that's at least the nice thing about this yeah that they do have the footage and they keep the footage because they need to know like it's an area where there's a lot of really important vehicles very expensive equipment all sort of stuff like that so if this was a body dump they will at least find that there but like there's so many questions here yeah like how'd you get in were you were you like arrested and the police just forgot you were there? Well, so they played a clip at the news conference on Friday and they said that a person was wandering the parking lot outside the police headquarters on September 25th. It's very grainy footage. Uh, it showed that a person a- appeared to enter a van. Subsequent images from the following three days show movement inside of the van. But uh, Nance's family are not really satisfied with that footage. Who would be? They said it wasn't clear enough to see whether it was Christina or not. Yeah. Um, and it's just very heartbroken to know that we didn't get the clarification that we really need and we really wanted. The family has hired civil rights attorney Ben Crump, pretty high profile civil rights attorney at that, to represent them as they are looking for answers. And of course, Crump has said we're going to get the truth of what happened to Christina Nance. Mm-hmm. 
Um, that autopsy concluded that she was not hit with trauma or foul play. Toxicology reports are pending. But like, oh, my God, do you not have people going through there? Like we're talking about potentially like if that was September 25th and she wasn't reported missing until like October 5th. We're talking about days where that girl's body was just in there and yeah. nobody walked through there. Nobody smelled anything. If anything, police officers should be number one at smelling the smell of dead bodies. Yeah, they should know what it smells I mean, like. That's one of the things that got John Wayne Gacy caught. He had all those bodies under his house and he didn't have an issue with inviting the police who were staking out his house to come inside. And literally one of the cops was like, it smells like a Morgan here. <laughs> like, it smells awful. It's fucking ridiculous. It's just so, so ballsy. Like, God, police officers, you. the thing was, they couldn't get the, the with Gacy, they couldn't get the approval to go into his house yeah. until he invited them in himself. Yeah. Because it was cold outside and he was like, hey, come in and get a cup of coffee. And they were like, it smells like bodies in here so we need to get somebody in here. Mm -hmm. But like, so police officers know what that smell is. And like, Part of the footage is that, like, cars were going by constantly. People were walking by that van constantly. So it's a busy, it's busy. Well, the cops have to go and get the vehicles there. Right. So they were going to do their job there. That, see, and so nobody looked in and saw that there was somebody inside of there. So this could have been an accidental death, but, like, I feel like the first day somebody should have noticed and there's nobody watching those security cameras, right, yeah. then why are they even there? Unless it was, like, a cop car that nobody actually used. Well, it was, it was a van, a... so I guess okay, it might have so... been a van they used for other stuff. It's a it's a prison. Right, yeah, um, for, like, transport. A transport van. So, so they use it to go to the prison and pick, collect people, take them to the court. Okay, so maybe which it is, just It's wasn't... not super used, but people did walk by it. Hmm. See, I thought it was a police, like a cruiser. No, 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 no. Because so, I was like, originally I was like in a trunk, but no, it was inside like the the back empty area huh. of like a van. But I'm like, so even if maybe this person was drunk or whatever and sat inside the van and then again, they said there was movement for days. I don't understand. This is just such a weird case. Huh. That is weird. So Very that's where we are as far as this goes. Uh, the autopsy, like I said, they just released the basic stuff from the autopsy. Mm -hmm. Toxicology can take weeks. So we're, you're probably not expecting any update on this until probably the end of October right, at the earliest. Yeah. But yeah, that was my story. I was pretty like, whoa. Oh my God. So like, I wish I could cover like more stories <laughs> at once because this week is like, there's, there's so much going on this week that I kind of want to talk about. Okay. Like the past, like, uh, there was something that happened in Philly on a train. Have you seen about that? Uh, I wanted to talk about it on TikTok, but honestly, it's so like hurtful for me to even discuss this. Like I took that train twice a day for like 10 years. I knew. Yeah. And I, and I thought about you and I was like, oh, <laughs> my sister about. still lives there. She takes that train. Like, at this point, I want to, like, Amazon her, like, a new taser. Yeah. And then there's a... um, was a, a It was only, like, 9.30 at night. I know. I know. And uh, and, and, I, I, and I'm still I'm still livid. The fact that somebody videotaped it and posted it online, I'm like, I would have his ass. Yes. We're not talking about that today. <laughs> and then there's a, a, a mod, uh, Aubrey, his his trial, the trial for the people who murdered him. Okay. Last yeah, yeah, yeah. Year. Uh, it's starting up soon. They're looking for a jury now. That's mm -hmm. happening. Right. Um, but there's another thing I saw this this week. Okay. That kind of like just caught my attention. I, like all, all everything that I talked about, it was all like attention grabbing, and I want to talk about it. But this thing, 
this thing. So headline reads, woman accused of killing man who refused to kiss her in Illinois home. That almost never happens. <laughs> it's not funny, but it's just. It's, I was saying that almost like never it, it never happens. It really like you don't hear that a lot. I mean, no, 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 no. There's this one point. There's this one uh, case. Some lady, she she held a gun to some guy's head because he wouldn't go down on her. <laughs> I remember that. I remember hearing I about that. I do remember that. Yeah. And I'm sorry. I shouldn't have laughed. That's sexual assault. It really but is. But like, or, okay, I do remember the lady who burned down that guy's house. So here's what happened. They set up a date, like, to hook up, right? Mm-hmm. And so she got there, and he had fallen asleep. And she got mad. So she set herself on fire. And I'm like, girl, just go home and diddle yourself. Oh it's God. okay. It happens to everybody. Sometimes your hookup falls asleep. That's the problem. When you set up a booty call, it's after 11 p.m. But anyway, let's so- talk about your story about this lady who tried to, like, murder somebody because they didn't kiss her. Oh, no, she did murder somebody. Oh, what? Yeah, he's dead. Oh, wow. I thought this was, like, attempted murder. No. That's funny. Um... <laughs> no okay 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 so her name is uh claudia resendez flores okay she's 28 years old uh illinois of course um so she lived in a house with this with this couple okay so oh. she, she was like a roommate this guy and his girlfriend this is becoming a triad <clears throat> so she just recently moved in with them uh-huh. and you know they were hanging out one night on the couch and she's like she's talking to the guy she's like hey how about you give me a kiss okay and he's like no thank you i got my girlfriend right here and he goes and kisses his girlfriend okay so it was like cutesy yeah only Um, it wasn't cutesy in her mind no and then she just became enraged wow miss claudia became enraged and then she apparently there's a gun on the couch for some reason right we just had our gat around you know who knows it was just sitting on the couch um and she picked it up and she pointed at his chest fired one shot and he fell to the ground okay his girlfriend called 911 but they could not save him. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It I'm terrible. Sorry, I laughed because it was just such a preposterous. This would be preposterous from any gender though. Like that somebody didn't kiss you so you murdered them. Yeah, like that's just that's like a huge leap. But like how terrible and she was right there. Yeah. It was like, And now she got to pay all that rent by herself. <laughs> Listen, I'm moving right now, <laughs> that's y'all. Why, yes. I'm looking for a place to move right now and the the housing market is awful, and so anytime I hear anything about housing, I'm like, wow, that's now she got paid three people rent with only one income, and there's a funeral. This is awful. Yeah, um, that's just insult to injury. Miss Claudia, she was charged with first degree murder, of course, of as course. she should be. Yes, and she's expected to return to court on Tuesday. Yeah, I don't expect one to get a uh, bail. No, she no, she's not no bond. For no that. bond, yeah, not at all. That was just cold blooded. Yeah, it was. Just, I just saw the title and I was like, "Wow, I need to read more about that." So there's no, there's like, police aren't uh, um getting giving any more information about it right now. I mean, even if they had a prior relationship or a hidden relationship or anything right, 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 like yeah. that, nothing, absolutely nothing, justifies, yeah, that you, reaction. No, that's like. Like, From, you could have blown up his spot and been like, 
yeah, well, you were kissing me last night. You, you could have done anything other than that. murder him. You could have just said that. You went from zero to 100, nigga, real quick. Jeez. <laughs> that's just atrocious. Oh, my God. But well, yeah, that's what I got this week for. Yeah, that was the popular news of the week. So this week's podcast is another one of the ones that I like covered very smallly on TikTok and looked into a little bit later. A couple months ago, I got a message from a follower who was born in Michigan and raised there and wanted me to cover a story that they learned about in school, but they felt was rarely covered in true crime podcasting or just in content on TikTok at all. I did my best to condense that story to a one minute clip because this was before TikTok allowed people to have three minute videos. Um, and I said, I was like, maybe I should do a better video. And then I started reading about this person and I went, no, no, no. He needs like a proper, like 45 to 60 minutes. Um, his name is Andrew Kehoe and, uh, he, it's referred to, it's the Bath School Massacre. Hmm. Uh, Bath is an area in Michigan, very small town and, it is, con- this massacre is considered to be the first school bombing in Ameri- America, one of our earliest mass killings in the United States. And for quite some time, it was the largest school murder. Okay. So today we're going to learn a bit why Andrew Kehoe murdered his wife, firebombed his own farm, and set off enough explosives to nearly destroy half of a town. Wow. Oh, wow. In Bath Township, Michigan. Okay, let's get you with. Like every week, we start at the beginning. Andrew Kehoe was born in Tecumseh, Michigan on February 1st, 1872. He was one of the youngest children in his family of 15, including his parents, Philip Kehoe and Mary Kehoe. Philip was an Irish immigrant whose family had fled the Great Famine of 1847 and had arrived in the U.S. in 1850, uh, just after his father, Patrick, and their family. They lived in Maryland, and then in 1855, Patrick left his family at 22 years old, traveled west, ending in Lanawee County, which is about 100 miles southeast of Bath, where Andrew's father raised a family. He was hired as a farmhand. After only two years, he was able to buy, are you ready for this, 80 acres of land. As a farmhand? As a farmhand. He worked as a farmhand for two years and was able to save up all of his money. And he bought an 80-acre farm. It, was, it wasn't it was raised or anything. Right. It was just forced. Which was fine because he was going to convert that into a timber farm. Mm-hmm. And that eventually, he continued buying more land until his farm was over 490 acres. That is the farm that Andrew Kehoe was raised on. He got married to his wife in 1864 after his first wife died and came into the marriage with Andrew's older sister, Lydia. And then Mary and Philip had six girls and three boys. Oh, wow. I would say that Philip could be described as nothing less than an immigrant success story. Uh, He got profiled in newspapers. His name is found in books in Michigan history as being this a valuable citizen. He was a high-quality stock breeder of short-horned cattle, a Shropshire sheep uh, breeder, and also he bred Poland China hogs. He was the township's drain commissioner, a well-loved member of the church St. Dominic in the town of Clinton, Michigan. 
uh, Andrew's family were devout Catholics, and two of his sisters, Mary and Christina, went on to be nuns. Mm. One of his sisters, Frances, ended up being a lawyer, which is impressive. Not like in general, it's impressive now, but Mm. it's impressive in the 1800s, considering that by the early 1900s, only 5% of Americans ever went to college at all. And Frances was one of 200 women who were practicing law. Nice. Like, so Andrew Kehoe comes from like, really, how can I say this? Just... The pressure is there on this kid. He comes from like a successful family. Yes, the pressure is there for Andrew to become a very successful person. This is like, okay, this is, you know all the other farm stories you've told? This is right, like the opposite. Right, it always starts out so awful. The farm sucks, everything sucks, no one's successful. <laughs> this, the Kehoe family is the extreme opposite of that. They took it and they ran with it. I They're love the it. American dream yeah. that was at the time. Yeah. Because remember, we talked about uh, maybe two weeks ago, mm. that they enticed immigrants to come to America and gave them farmland. Right. Well, see, this was different. Philip Kehoe came to America with his family. He was like, I'm not going to take your farmland you're giving me because it's probably trash. Yes. I'm going to go find some good farmland in Michigan and build an empire. Yep. He did it. Oh, my God. He did it. (laughs) Yeah. So Andrew Kehoe was born seventh in line. He was his father's first son. This was the boy that Philip always wanted. And it's not unreasonable to say there's a lot of pressure on this kid from a very young age. Philip was a stern man and he was pretty demanding of himself. So it's very easy to speculate that he was probably demanding on his first son Mm -hmm. who was going to extend his legacy. But that's really all speculation because there isn't a whole lot known about Andrew Kehoe's childhood. One thing that we do know from the end of his life and his crimes, however, is that he grew up to have one hell of an ego, an inflated sense of self-worth, and a whole lot of arrogance. But we're going to get into that once he's more of a man. For little boy Andrew, he got to grow up in what we call the age of electricity in the U.S. Uh, This was when homes were changing from firelight to the incandescent light bulb. And Andrew was really interested in the technology at the time, and he was described as being like a little tinkerer. He made all these little electrical devices that people would find, like his parents would find all over the house. As a boy, he was active in an uh, organization called the American Farmers Club with his family, which was an interesting sort of social club where farmers could like get together every so often because farming is very isolating, especially on these gigantic farms with people and these huge families working all the time. Mm -hmm. So the club would be about 20 to 25 families and everybody would like host an event at their house and have music, food. Like sometimes the, the adults would put on like, performances or like plays the kids would put on plays they would sit and they would talk about like the political space with farming and whatnot okay right i was like what a nice little like situation i want a social club that's just like i don't know the podcaster social club and we go to each other's houses and we talk about how podcasting is really hard and we're trying our best or yes oh my god can we make that a thing you have an editor's meeting for you oh editing sucks so much i can't stand it Please. Let's make it a thing. Well, Andrew went to Tecumseh High School, and just at the end of his high school career, his mother died. She had a long illness. It was listed in the census as disease of the nervous system. And for a few years, Andrew ended up not leaving the farm and staying with his dad to help him with the livestock breeding. In 1898, Andrew's dad married his third wife, and Andrew left home and kind of disappeared out of history for a couple of years. 
before he ended up going to what is now Michigan State College, where he studied electrical engineering or as much as what was electrical engineering at the time. Hmm. He made his way to Iowa, worked as a lineman, stringing electrical wire. He lived in St. Louis, Missouri, attended another electrical school while he was working as an electrician. Um, it was there working as an electrician in St. Louis, Missouri, that you know what happened. No. He fell off a ladder uh, and he hit his head. No, he didn't. It was a real serious fall, actually. It was such a serious fall that he was in a coma for two weeks. And when he recovered enough, he traveled back home and he ended up struggling to like regain his faculties for the next two months. <sighs> He would experience loss of consciousness at random times. I don't even know if we could say that that was a, what do you call it, concussion. That Mm -hmm. sounds way worse than a concussion. So he was up probably at the high, high, high parts of the electrical wooden poles and he probably fell. How do you not die from that? He probably lucked out. It's lucky that he didn't. God, yes. So after that, he worked on his father's farm in Lenawee County, Michigan, as just a regular farmhand like he'd been as a boy. Mm. I'm not really sure how he would have felt as a 38-year-old man in 1910 having to go back home and live with his family. Philip was 77. Philip also now had an 8-year-old daughter named Irene. And apparently Andrew wasn't all that fond of his little sister because there was a news article from the time that mentioned that Irene had a cat and Andrew killed it. Oh, here it goes. <laughs> it, yeah. it just keeps getting worse. <laughs> well, then, in 1911, Irene's mother and uh, Andrew's stepmother mm. had a terrible accident. So, it's September 17th, 1911. Um, her name was Frances, and she was making dinner. The family had some of the newest technology in kitchenware, a gas stove. And gas stoves back then ran on crude gasoline that was stored in a very tiny tank, above the stove and it was piped down to the stove Mm -hmm. this was like the best thing that money could buy and there were all these old advertisements you can see that like say things like for 10 cents a day you can do your whole family's cooking the problem with these stoves is that they were really hazardous and the manufacturers didn't have to tell people the dangers of things back then so what happened to francis is what happened to dozens of other people who own these stoves according to the chicago tribune there were all these articles about these stoves exploding. Just, yeah, leaving the gas on for... Well, not even that. She was attempting to light it. Mm. And it exploded. She was covered in fuel. Um, Andrew tried to help his mother by pouring water on her. But, of course, we know now that oil-based uh, fires need to be almost chemically handled. Yes. I'm not even sure there could have been a way to save her. Not... Uh. Because according to fire, the fire safety classes that I have to take for work, a grease fire in a pan, you would put a lid on. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can pour like baking soda or salt to smother the fire. Yeah. She could have rolled out on the dirt. Yeah, that's probably it. You Because like, usually what we would have is like what's right behind you right now, a class B dry chemical fire extinguisher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but that wasn't even created until the middle of the 20th century. Outside of, like you said, stop, drop, and roll. Uh, and at that point, the damage was already done. Yeah. Uh, one of Andrew's siblings actually reported that they all ran to the kitchen when they heard the explosion. Andrew just stood there and watched for a little bit before trying to help. Then he threw a bucket of water on her, which caused the oil to spread to more than 
of her body. Mm-hmm. One of the books that I was reading said that throwing water on her skin would have like melted what little skin she had left. That was a direct quote. <sighs> Uh, 80-year-old Philip came in, and they smothered the flames somehow. He might have brought in, like, a blanket or something. Mm -hmm. They carried Francis to her bed. Andrew had to walk to a neighbor to call a doctor and tell them that somebody was burned. She was beyond medical help that any doctor could do at the time. Um, It was mentioned in news articles that her muscle was roasted to the bone. She died only a couple hours later. Um. Years later, after Andrew tried to blow up half of Bath, Michigan, people wondered if he had anything to do with his stepmother's death. We'll never really know. Hmm. So on May 14th, 1912, eight months after the death of Francis Kehoe, Andrew gets married. He was 40 years old. Her name was Ellen Agnes Price, but she was known as Nellie to everyone around her. She was born in 1875, and she came from a really wealthy Irish Catholic family who had also been immigrants like Philip and made their way to the U.S. Nellie's family had a Civil War hero in it, though. Her uncle Lawrence, who fought in some pretty big battles like Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, Gettysburg. Lawrence had taken his money from the war, gone to Bath Township, bought land, which he had turned into a 320-acre farm, and then he turned that money that he made from the farm into a successful chain of grocery stores, a lumber yard, dry good, and hardware stores. So Lawrence Price, also a rock star. <laughs> yeah. He On took that money. Wait. And then he invested in the auto industry oh, in Detroit. Wow. <laughs> nice. Oh, he was also chief of police in Lansing, Michigan, and was on the city council. Oh, I like him. Yeah, <laughs> Nellie pretty much came from some of the most wealthy Irish people in the U.S. Now, it's reported that Nellie and Andrew first met in college, but there aren't any records saying that she ever went there. Hmm. Somehow, we don't know how, a middle-aged bachelor met Nellie, an old maid herself at 37 years old, mm-hmm. and they got married. Both lost their mothers at a young age. Both were Irish Catholic. Both were really into education. They got married at St. Mary Church in Lansing, Michigan. There was a fancy wedding breakfast afterward at her father's house, which was right down the street from Lawrence's (laughs) mansion. Now, Nellie moved into the Kehoe farm, and Andrew did most of the work now that Philip was so old, and Nellie was taking care of 10-year-old Irene. Nellie did a bit of outreach with the Tecumseh Catholic Church, but she went alone. See, Andrew had been asked by the church, since both he and his wife were doing pretty good, Mm -hmm. to donate $400 for the building, and he flat out refused to pay. And then when the parish priest showed up to collect the money, it was reported that he threatened the priest if he didn't leave the property. So Nellie went to church by herself. Uh... (laughs) This is this is not the first time in any of the books that I read about Andrew Kehoe that this he was just weirdly paranoid about all the people around him. He was worried people were going to take advantage of him. Uh, one time he purchased eight steer from a neighbor and he put them in a pasture of clover, which I was unaware of is a bad thing to do. There's apparently all these things in old almanacs about not putting cows in wet clover. Mm. apparently fresh wet clover or alfalfa is not good and it causes something called ruminal tympani aka cattle bloat and what it looks like is that from 
the back, if you just look at the cow straight on, they have ballooned up. Oof. It causes like this intense like indigestion and gas buildup in their stomachs and they're likely to die. Two of Andrew's cattle died and he skinned them and tried to use what he could from the fact they died. And he went to the neighbor and demanded a 50% refund on the cattle. Okay, but it's not his neighbor's fault. <laughs> well, and the, the neighbor was like, no, I sold you healthy cows and uh, bye. <laughs> and Andrew never spoke to that man ever again and told everybody in the community that he had been defrauded. Oh, goodness. Everything's your fault, not mine. So February 12th, 1917, Nellie's uncle dies. He leaves an 80-acre farm in Bath. On it is a three-story home with bay windows that's apparently like beautiful and everybody wants it the house was valued about twelve thousand dollars in 1917 which is about two hundred fifty six thousand dollars now um andrew put down half of that that six thousand dollars and then set up a deal to pay andrew price's estate three hundred sixty dollars in monthly installments that is so much money like my dad paid a three hundred dollar mortgage on a house that was purchased in the 80s. Mm. That, that that's a lot of that's not that much like in our now money. Yeah. <laughs> but that's outlandish that he agreed to pay so much back so quickly. In the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's like I need this I, no, I want it to be mine. Mine mine. So right before Nellie's uncle died, Philip Kehoe died, and Andrew was chopping at the bit to get rid of this farm, which is outlandish because like it was paid for and it was this beautiful, huge, like almost 300 acre farm. Maybe he didn't want to work on it. Well, as soon as Andrew secured the mortgage on the house in Bath, he started running ads to sell the Keyhole farm. It took him two years to sell it, but he did get rid of it. And it wasn't because the property wasn't desirable. It's because Andrew was a complete and a utter brat to work with. Like, Apparently, there was a $45 stack of firewood on the property. And the right thing to do after this person bought acres off of you would be to leave it, right? And just go, whatever. These people can have it. Yeah. It's a timber farm. What do these people need with more timber? No. He had to sell it. And uh, the family, they were the Allen family, who bought it were like, we don't need it. Literally. Timber. <laughs> so he ended up selling the firewood to somebody else. But that, that was just the kind of petty that this man was. Oh, my God. Then he went about selling off all of his dad's prized sheep and cattle, money like a dummy. And then he shipped his family's furniture and farming equipment to his new house in Bath. In spring of 1919, Andrew and Nellie moved into their new home. Now, in Bath, Andrew came off as this, like, very cool, clever guy. He was offering to help people, which was completely uncharacteristic of him. <clears throat> His neighbors thought he was great. He would just show up and fix stuff. He would help install machines in stores since he was an engineer. Between this and Nellie, who was already well-known in the area, they were pretty much immediately accepted. Nellie joined the Ladies' Friday Afternoon Club, which was for well-to-do women. They would take turns reading and discussing American culture. The Keos went to these card-playing nights with other couples until Andrew became a rules lawyer and people stopped inviting him because nobody likes a rules lawyer. <laughs> he was like that with a lot of things in his life. Um, he would often talk about his time at Michigan State 
and how smart he was. He was also known to dress. Okay. Now they're like, oh, he dressed very fancy. I was like, no, he dressed like an ass. Okay. And this was not a one-time thing. Every picture that I have ever found of him, he is in a three-piece suit. And it is reported that he wore that suit even when he was out on his farm in his tractor. Okay. His very, he loved this very expensive tractor. Well, I would have at least worn a suit. And then if he got like some dirt on the suit while he was doing his farm work, Mm -hmm. he would go change. There are, like I said, there aren't that many pictures of Andrew Kehoe, but he always looks like this. Look, if you got the money to buy a suit, just wear it all the time. Buy it. <laughs> That's your idea? You're like, listen, I own this tux, I would, and I'm going to wear it. Look, uh, How I Met Your Mother, Barney, mm-hmm. he just wore a suit every day. True, that was him. I, I, but I, Barney was also kind of an insufferable ass. Never mind, you're right. You're right. <laughs> you didn't really like make a good like bet on this. Okay, well, I like Barney, okay? <laughs> So while Andrew is very publicly social with his neighbors, he didn't really have any close friends. He never got deep with anybody. He never had anybody who would call a best friend. He definitely didn't make any friends by doing things like shooting his neighbor's dog because it annoyed him. Uh, His neighbors reported that sometimes he worked the animals on his farm until they were ill. And then one time he even admitted to a neighbor pretty much that he had beaten a horse to death. Oh, my God. Like, he said that he had, like, worked it so hard and then he had to, like, hit it to make it keep working. And I'm like, bro, you definitely killed your horse. Yeah. You murdered it. I guess Andrew saw himself as, like, a cosmopolitan type kind of guy. And his dad had been involved in politics, so he wanted to be just like his dad. So he volunteered and was elected to the board of directors of the Bath Farm Bureau in April of 1921. He also quit seven months later. Why? Well, during this time, he was struggling financially. There was a there was a post-war farm crisis that happened across the U.S. And... Andrew's farm did not have a good yield and it was going to put him in debt. So remember that astronomical mortgage payment? Mm -hmm. He missed it a lot. And in 1922, he wrote to the lawyer for the Price Estate, Joseph Dunback, and was like, listen, I missed a couple payments. I'm so sorry. And Dunback's like, I'm not going to put my friend's niece and her husband out. He's like, I got it. You guys can have an extension. Mm -hmm. So the bad crop is one thing. But he also has an issue with the local school tax. And I'll admit, it was kind of expensive. So it was $12.26 for every $1,000 of property that you owned, which was about $150 a year, which would be you right now, in today's money, paying $2,000 for a school tax. No, fuck fuck you. I pay $160 for the school tax here. And I don't like it. No. No. (laughs) I literally look at the bill and go, where is this money going? Because we have one of the worst school districts in the state. (laughs) Where is this money going? Obviously not to where it needs to go, which is exactly what Andrew was saying. Oh, my God. Now, he didn't like it because the bath school, bath township had built this new fancy school. So in his head, he was like, this is where the money's going to pay for this giant. It was called the Bath Consolidated School to pay for this huge building. Right, right. And he, there were some corruptions that were happening. And Andrew was like, I'm going to fix it. 
Okay, how are you going to fix it? So he ran for a place on the board with the specific intention of fixing the financials. That election was held on, in July of 1924. There were six candidates for the job, including the incumbent, Enos Peacock, who was a member of one of Bath's original families. Oof, blue blood. A hundred people showed up to vote and Andrew got half the votes. Oh, nice. He was elected for a term of three years. He set about making changes right away, and one of those was cutting staff pay. Bad choice. Bad, <sighs> yep. bad choice. He pointed out how nepotism had made the bus routes ideal for school board members and their kids. And he was like, no, it should be based on bidding, and the community will bid on which stops the school bus stops at. Because what it was was that pretty much if you were a member of the board, you were like, well, I would prefer if the school bus was outside of my house. Oh. And everybody else had to walk to your house to go there. He was like, well, it should be where like most people, most of the kids are. Okay, that makes sense. Right. It does make sense. That was a good one. He also decided he didn't like the superintendent, Emery uh, Hayek. And this is going to go on for the next several years. His disdain for Emery. Lovely. He didn't even want Emery to show up to school board meetings. And he immediately got overruled because, like, at least the superintendent cares and wants to know what's going on. (laughs) Yeah. What the hell? Hayek was always requesting more money for books and upgrades to the school. And Andrew thought that he was wasteful and just complained about him nonstop. When it was time to give him, like, Hayek a raise, Andrew argued it down from a $200 raise to a $100 raise. Oh, my God. Come on. He argued against trying to give the superintendent his two-week summer vacation. And the board was like, you can't take away the man's vacation. No. He's not even going to get paid for the time that he isn't here. Um, as the school board treasurer, it was his job to hand out the payroll checks. And Andrew would always conveniently forget Hayek's check, and Hayek would have to track him down to get his money. Oh, no. See, we'd be fighting after that. (laughs) Don't play with my money. (laughs) You know what? Hayek handled it with grace. Um, He wasn't always a pest, though. Andrew was not always a pest. In the winter of 1925, the school dealt with a bee problem. Apparently, during the fall, the bees had nested inside of the school, and when they turned the furnace on in the building, Mm. that made the bees scatter around the building, which, of course, freaked out all the kids. So Hayek was like, I'm going to try and fix this. And he couldn't. And the principal, Floyd Huggett, also couldn't. And then Andrew was like, I can do it. And then somehow the bees were all gone. Hmm. The board was so happy with this that they were like, listen, do you just want to be the unofficial handyman at the school? And so they give him a workbench in the basement. And he starts doing electrical repairs in the school, fixing stuff, fixing the plumbing, fixing the tiles. This was like a really nice season of good things going on this year. That sounds like awesome work, buddy. Good job. Mm -hmm. Good job. But of course, (laughs) all good things come to an end. Of course. So it's fall of 1925. Andrew Kehoe calls up his good friend. Well, the best friend he could have, one of his neighbors, Job Slate, and asks for a ride to Jackson, which is about 50 miles south of Bath. And Slate's like, why? And so Andrew tells him, pirate all. Pyridol was a mix of smokeless powder and nitrate that was sold in cartridges that looked a lot like dynamite. You know what pyridol is. I do. (laughs) 
It was a lower grade explosive than dynamite and it was also significantly cheaper. We had so much of it because we used it during World War One. Mm-hmm. And in 1924, the U.S. Department of Agriculture was like, we can sell this to farmers and offload this giant amount of explosives we have that's not being used right now because the World War is over. So they diluted the pyrodol because when it was used in World War One, it was a lot more um, potent. caustic. Yeah, yeah, potent. And they diluted it and they sold it to farmers as a easy way to clear like stumps and trees on their land. All the farmers in the United States were allowed to buy 1,000 pounds <laughs> of pyrodol cartridges, <laughs> which ended up being 3,000 individual cartridges. Andrew and his buddy Slate go to Jackson and Andrew buys 500 pounds and everybody just assumes, well, he has an 80 acre farm. He's probably using it on the farm. Yeah. Now, after that calm winter of Andrew really discovering his purpose at the school and things were going great, he hit his one year term as the town clerk and he was like, I'm going to do this. That was, he took the town clerk gig after he quit the other gig. Mm Mm-hmm. But nobody wanted him to be town clerk anymore because he was a pain. So that that election was supposed to be April 1926. On March 15th, the organization decided that he wasn't even allowed to run as a candidate. Oh, damn. Because they thought he was overbearing and confrontational. Come on. He still got the job done, right? <laughs> so he decided he was going to run for justice of the peace in the spring. And he was also defeated. Yeah. He got two very quick crushing blows to his ego. He was very much publicly humiliated. All he had left was his job at the school board. Mm -hmm. So he had tried to do the agriculture board, the town clerk, and justice of the peace. And all three of those are gone in under a year. It's terrible. While all this is going on, Nellie, like, gets sick. She's losing weight. She looks pale. She's having horrible headaches. Violent coughing fits. Nellie freaks out because she's like, my mother died of tuberculosis. This sounds a lot like tuberculosis. Mm. So just one week after the caucus banned him from running for election, Nellie gets put in the St. Lawrence Hospital in Lansing. This isn't going to be the first time she goes in there. And her hospital stays were lengthy and added to the financial burden that Andrew was trying to pay for. Mm. So when Andrew goes and buys all these explosives in 1925, remember how I told you a couple years ago, they were like, we'll extend your mortgage. What's up? Nothing problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 1925, he hadn't paid his mortgage in almost four years. Oh, my God. What? Now, part of his refusal to pay was that he didn't have a lot of money. But also, Andrew now had it in his head that he had been sold the property at an inflated rate and the Price family had taken advantage of him. He sold it to his sister. He sold it to, so the the Price estate, Dunbach owned it and a, an aunt and uncle, mm. so siblings of Lawrence, okay, so, were part of the estate holders. Okay. And Nellie was his niece. Gotcha, niece. So they sold it in the family. They weren't trying to like screw Nellie over. Right, they right. loved her. What family would want to do that purposely? Now, this is one of those situations where if this had been a bank, this would have never happened. Um, Their names were Julia and Richard Price. Mm -hmm. So Aunt Julia and Uncle Richard were very nice. Um, However, by spring of 1926, they were pretty much over it. 
And they were also over the random bizarre accusations that he would make against them. Now, as an heir to the estate, Nellie was receiving these like intermittent payments of roughly $500 and she was going to receive them for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. Since Nellie and Andrew pretty much owed the estate like $17,000 in back mortgage payments. Technically not. It wouldn't be 17000 because I calculated four years. But really, so he paid off six. He paid 6000 and then he stopped paying within a couple. So it really he only owed like another like three grand on the property. You could have paid that off? I think so. Like, he could have probably paid that off just in smaller increments. Yeah. But the amount of time that he would have paid at three sixty times four years is seventeen thousand dollars. I'm like, you definitely made something in that time period. Yeah, like you could have you bought five hundred pounds of pyrodol. <laughs> exactly. And even if you like you're struggling with cash, you could have just talked to them. They're family. Could have sent something. It yeah. didn't have to be three sixty a month. It could have been like ten dollars a month. Exactly. You could have had to accuse them of like charging you extra for this place. they were like oh you inflated it it shouldn't have even been twelve thousand oh dollars that's God. what he was giving them that's you got how many acres in that fucking land shut up but right so since they owed about three thousand dollars still the attorney was like bet you owe us money we're just gonna keep nelly's payment mm. um nelly was like this seems reasonable mm-hmm. andrew mm-hmm. was like absolutely not <laughs> and he was so mad he took lawrence price's estate to court over that $500 payment that was supposed to go to his wife. And the judge ruled in favor oh that my. the check should still be issued to Nelly. But no, that's not what happens nowadays. No. no. This would never happen <laughs> that, now. That bank is taking your money. You're not Listen, getting it. Listen, if this, that bank would have taken that house yes. after a year max, you would start <laughs> getting them letters within two months. Yes. Been foreclosed. Regardless, after that situation happens, another seven months pass. No payments from Andrew Kehoe. And so uh, attorney Dunback filed a foreclosure on the property. He wanted to make sure that he'd be able to recover the property back to the estate. This got mailed in October of 1926 to the Clinton County Sheriff, Barton Fox. It was going to be the sheriff's responsibility to serve the document to the Kehoes. Mm-hmm. Now, attorney Dunback was on his way back from the post office and he ended up running into Nellie's sister and he learned that Nellie was ill. And he was like, oh, crap, I feel so bad. And he went back to call the sheriff to stop the foreclosure notice. Hmm. He called the sheriff over and over. And then at like 5 p.m., he sent a telegram begging the sheriff not to serve the Kehoes with the court summons. And he was like, it's fine. We'll handle this in-house. Unfortunately, the sheriff had already gotten the, the foreclosure and delivered it to Andrew before the telegram even got there. The sheriff said that Andrew looked at it and said, if it hadn't been for that $300 school tax, I might have paid off the mortgage. Don't blame the tax. In November of 1926, Andrew drives into Lansing with his brand new pickup truck. Mind you, you owe <laughs> so much money and now you bought a pickup truck. You had, no, I don't know where this money came from. Buys two boxes of dynamite along with the blasting caps. Mm. Nobody hears about Andrew over the holiday season. Until New Year's Eve, when he sets off an explosive at midnight. The neighbors were talking about it, and nobody thought a whole lot of it, really. They thought he was just celebrating the brand new year. Mm -hmm. When Slate visited uh, his friend about two weeks later, he asked Andrew about it, and Andrew told him he had figured out how to rig the pyrodol to a timer and set it for midnight. (laughs) In hindsight, this is very foreboding. 
Yes. But no one knew that Andrew had been quietly stewing in his own dark thoughts. In fact, by spring, people noticed he wasn't out on his tractor in his suit anymore. And his farm kind of looked kind of abandoned. And the crops were all just rotting in the fields. Mm. In May of 1927, Andrew drives to Lansing and buys a hotshot battery at the Gold Spencer Auto and Radio Supply Store. No one thought this was odd either because hotshot batteries were really popular devices used during cold weather to essentially like, you know, this was a time period where you were cranking your right, right, your okay. truck or your car to open it. And so if it was too cold and you didn't want to be out there cranking all hardcore like that, you could buy a hotshot battery. And what it would do is give the motor an electrical charge mm-hmm. to fire off the engine for, you know, and then that would kind of start it up ahead of time. Okay. Essentially before we learned that you could just do that with an engine. <laughs> right. <laughs> That same month, Andrew was distributing paid day checks to the staff. And usually when he gave people money, he didn't talk to them because he was like kind of stank. Mm -hmm. When Andrew gave the bus driver his check, it fell on the floor and Andrew told the driver, you better keep that. It might be the last one you get. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Also (laughs) ominous. Other people in town had weird exchanges with Andrew during this time too. Things that all clicked, but after it was way too late. Same month of May, a woman by the name of Ida Hall wakes up to a motor running outside of her house. Her house is next to the Bath Consolidated School. She sees Andrew carrying crates into the school, and she assumes he's taking potatoes into the building because they were wooden crates, and that's how potatoes come. Right, yeah. It never crossed her mind it could be anything else. Not dynamite. She just thought it was odd that he was delivering food at two in the morning. That is odd. Also that month, the janitor kept noticing that a trap door that gave access to a crawl space under the school was open all the time. At first, he thought it was his fault because he had been fixing an old pipe that was leaking. But then he noticed that like every week in May, it was open. The janitor assumed that the superintendent, Hike, had gone in to check up on his work Mm -hmm. and he didn't mention it to anybody. Nellie is still very sick. She leaves the hospital in May and she goes to stay at her sister's house in Lansing. Andrew picks her up from her sister's house May 16th. The following night, Nellie's sister called to talk to her and couldn't reach anyone. And finally, Andrew picks up the phone and is like, are you the person who's been calling? And she's like, yeah, where's my sister? And so he tells her, well, Nellie's really lonely at the house. And so she went to Jackson to go be with some of her friends, the Vosts. Hmm. He tells her sister he's going to go pick her up on Thursday. Now, that was May 16th at night. Earlier during the day at May 16th, a teacher at the Bath Consolidated School called Andrew and asked if she could bring her class of first graders to his property for an end-of-day picnic. And he was like, sure, it's the last week of school. You can do that. How about you come tomorrow, actually? One of Andrew's neighbors, Monty Ellsworth, wrote in his own book about the uh, Bath Massacre. This is a quote from Monty. I suppose that he wanted the children to have a little bit of fun before he killed them. So fucking sad. So the last day of school at Bath Consolidated School is scheduled for May 18th, 1927. This is going to be the day of final exams. So we have May 16th. Nellie's nowhere to be found. Mm -hmm. Also, the kids come on May 17th to have a picnic. The last day of school is May 18th. It's the day of final exams. The exams are all in the morning, and it's uh, a big event. And in the afternoon, there are 
class parties and things. Final exams were a chance for kids who are struggling to turn their grades around. So if you had like an A before finals, you didn't have to come to school until the afternoon. Oh, nice. Okay. Lovely. Uh, so on the day of Andrew's attack, only 250 students were in the building. That's still a lot of kids, but it could have been a lot more. It's true. So we're going to go through the morning of what happened here. All right. And it's a lot. And I'm actually going to be really honest with you. There were a couple times during writing this mm-hmm. that I got kind of emotional. And so um, I'm sorry because <laughs> this is really like what happens here is really messed up. Mm-hmm. And it was very deliberate and it's intense. So 9.45 a.m., May 18th, there's an alarm clock hidden in the basement of the consolidated school that is attached to a bomb. The graduating seniors who needed to boost their grades were sitting down to take their finals. The second through fourth graders were reading a story in their classrooms. Um, The fifth graders were in the process of switching classrooms so that the sixth graders could use their room downstairs. A repairman, George Harrington, was there with Frank Smith, the regular janitor, trying to fix a broken water pump in the basement. Monty Ellsworth, Andrew Kehoe's neighbor, was planting in his yard and his wife was doing some cleaning. Superintendent Hayek had just rang the physical bell for the start of classes because there had been an electrical issue within the school and so the electrical bells weren't working. Okay. George Harrington when spoken to remembered an awful sound from behind him in the basement as he was thrown against an opposite wall. The entire back room of Leona uh, Gutenkun's second grade classroom collapsed. Had that group of children not been reading at the time, they would have been under where the collapse happened. Mm. Instead, they were at the front part of the classroom with their teacher, like on the carpet. Okay. Um, the room that the fifth graders had moved to collapsed on top of the sixth graders who were taking their exams. Mm. A woman who lived down the street from the school named uh, Lahal Warner was hanging curtains and she witnessed the collapse of one side of the school. By the time she ran out of her house to the building to help, like the upper floors were falling too. Anyone close to the school ran to try and help them. Mabel Ellsworth recounted hearing she could hear the children scream and see a plume of white dust rise from the schoolhouse. She ran to her husband who was standing in the yard and he's turned around looking at the Kehoe farm, which is also on fire. At the exact same moment, there was a cloud of smoke coming from the barn. Local electrical workers, Oscar Bush and Wesley Campbell were first on the scene at the Kehoe fire because they were out working on the electrical poles. Mm -hmm. They moved stuff out of the way, pushed things. And then Bush, as he was looking through, was like, holy crap, there is unlit dynamite in the corner of this barn. So Bush and Campbell, not even thinking, start grabbing it and like throwing it out of the windows of the barn because they're worried it's going to get the fire's going to spread and it's It's going to explode. Yeah. Yeah. Campbell is heard yelling, there's enough dynamite in there to blow up the country before running away from the barn. He was obviously a little excited. There wasn't enough to blow up the barn, but it was probably enough to blow up the block Mm. and other people's farms and cars and things too. Um, While other neighbors arrived to help, they like heard that and then they all started hightailing it <laughs> away from the Kehoe farm. The electrical workers were able to make it to their car before the farmhouse exploded. 
This time it was bigger and more violent and that knocked them into their work truck. That wasn't even what was on fire before. The barn was on fire before. Right. The house exploded next. They just hopped it and began driving. Within minutes, every building on the Kehoe farm was on fire. Neighbors said that there were flames shooting out of every window in the house. There was no way that anybody who was in there would have ever been saved. So another farmer nearby, Sidney Howell, and he was there with his sons, Rob and Alden, and their neighbor, Melvin Armstrong, are watching this like, holy crap, there's no way we can do anything. There's no gathering buckets to deal with this. Right, yeah. Um, Andrew Kehoe drives out of the flames and stops by them on the road and says, boys, you are my friends. You better get out of here. You better go down to the school. And then he speeds off. <laughs> On the other side of town, every pe- people are just rushing to the school. They're in shock. This was the town's biggest and most beautiful building. And it looked like World War II. Mm. World War I, actually. Two didn't happen yet. Yeah. The entire north wing was a pile of rubble. The, the roof had fallen down on it. Dozens of children and their teachers can be heard moaning and screaming under the bricks. The town is just racing to try and save them and move the rubble, but the roof is stopping them. Almost every family in town had a child at the Bath Consolidated School, if not more than one. Uh, The kids they were able to immediately pull out were covered in dust, plaster, blood. Uh, Ellsworth rushes there and a local barber named Jay Pope goes, well, maybe we can move move the roof with the pulley system. So the two of them hop in a car to run into town to get as many ropes as they can. Mm -hmm. The South wing of the school is not collapsed, but it had been shaken and the building was really unsteady. The stairs were destroyed in the building. So Emery Hayek like tells the kids to go up. He's like, we're going to go up and they're on the North side of the building on the roof. And Emery like the BAMF that he was, Starts yelling to the townspeople, go get ladders. We have to get these kids down here. Mm -hmm. So he, people show up uh, with ladders and they get the fourth through seventh graders who were on that side of the building down and off into safety. Then Emery uh, runs to the town's telephone office, which was at the Vale household. Vale adults are not there. The only person there is the 17-year-old daughter, Lorena Babcock. And he's like, got you. I will help you do this. I need you to start making these calls. Uh He calls the fire department, the police, hospitals in every surrounding town and village. He has her make a call to the state department and the state police. From the jump, Emery Hayek is like, I am pretty sure this was not an accident. Now, Andrew had not successfully leveled the school. And we'll learn about why that happened. But because it's what he intended. And a lot of children survived, but many did not. Uh, Someone named Doris Johns arrived at the school almost as soon as the explosion happened. And while she was trying to help people, she it was reported in Emery. um, Emery's book that she saw her daughter hanging by her legs. Yeah. Mr. C. Chapman raced from his farm to help move timber. He was able to hear his nine-year-old son, Russell, call out to him. And, like, Russell was like, I'm fine. Just come get me. Um, Mm -hmm. By the time they were able to move the rubble to get to Russell, a beam shifted and nearly severed the boy's head. Like, it 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 was that kind of a tenuous situation. He didn't even, like, the little boy didn't even have time to be afraid. 
because it was just a shift in all of the stuff that was on top of him and done. Little by little, the town folks started pulling dead children and staff out of the building. They laid their bodies on the grassy side of the north side of the school. The injured were brought there, too, to wait for medical help that was coming from Lansing. People started opening their homes. They brought in more injured there and laid people on beds and couches. One of those families was Frank Smith and his wife, Leona. Superintendent Hayek asked if he could use their bedroom for people. And of course, they were like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Put people anywhere. After bringing more children to them, he stopped and he looked at a little girl in their living room. And um, Mrs. Smith told writer Arnie Bernstein later that he looked at the little girl and he said, I think she's dying. Mm. And he got really choked up. And then he was like, he he just turned and went back. Yeah. He was going back to save his school. Now, Monty Ellsworth, while they're in town, see, he sees... Andrew Kehoe driving erratically through town in Monty Ellsworth book. He remembers that Kehoe's face was like contorted in this weird grin. He said, I could see both rows of his teeth. I can see them yet. Marty didn't really have time to think about Andrew Kehoe though. He had to return with the ropes. So they go back to the school. There are dozens of parents there. Everyone's helping side by side, throwing just bricks and timber behind them. Um, there would be a brief moment where a parent would find their kid alive and happy and they'd be like, yes, awesome. And then they would turn around and go back to trying to help their neighbors find their kids. Mm. Okay. Uh, repairman George Harrington and Janitor Frank Smith survived. What? How? I don't know. They were literally feet away from say, this bomb. They're right there. He, you said he got thrown across the room. He got thrown across the room by the blast. <clears throat> George was later quoted as saying, I did everything I could, but I could not stand it long. The children were screaming and moaning, and it was almost enough to make a strong man faint. <sighs> so they both tried to help, but some of, like, even Frank, uh, sorry, either George Harrington said that it was just an awful place, like, to experience. They tried with the ropes. The roof was too heavy. Mm-hmm. They tried to prop it up with a utility pole that hadn't been placed in town yet. So they went and got that. They were in the process of wedging the pole in between the rubble and the roof just to even get a little bit of headway in that space. Right. Andrew Kehoe drives onto the scene. What shit is he going to do? I think you have an idea. So the next moments are chaos and confusion. So some of this story is missing some detail. Mm-hmm. But several eyewitnesses told Monty Ellsworth that they saw Kehoe kind of beckon Superintendent Hayek to his car. The two exchanged words. It looked like an argument. They looked like they were, were grabbing something. Mm-hmm. Some people said they thought it was a gun. Some people saw all different kinds of guns. Doesn't matter. At 10.30 a.m., Andrew Kehoe blew up his car, taking himself and his adversary with him. The Lansing State Journal reported that their body parts were found hanging in tree branches and in the grass. Oh, wow. So little was found of Andrew Kehoe that they confirmed his identity with a small piece of his skull and skin that still had gray hair sticking to it. Wow. Superintendent Hayek was described as a terrible hunk of blood and bone and hair bearing some likeness to a human body. His identity was confirmed because he had been wearing a checkered sports coat that he hadn't taken off that day. Mm-hmm. And that was still on the sort of stump of his body. Oh my God. That car explosion also killed Glenn Smith and his father-in-law, Nelson McFerrin, who were just there trying to rescue people. Mm-hmm. 
McFerrin was thrown into the air and his body was horribly disfigured. Smith lost his leg and people there rushed to try and help him and tourniquet it. He was alive long enough to comfort his friends and talk to them. But when he was put in an ambulance and taken to the hospital, he died on the way. He was only 33 years old. That explosion maimed many of the people who were there trying to help the children. Um, it wasn't from the bomb, though. It was because while Kehoe was driving around the city like a man-man, he was picking up scraps of metal, nuts, bolts, and nails and throwing them in the bed of his oh, truck. Oh, God damn you. Which turned that explosion from his engine into devastating projectiles. Yeah. A woman who was a block away <clears throat> from the explosion, holding her infant daughter in her arms, was hit with a piece of metal. And it tore out her eye and blew off part of her skull. Oh, my God. Amazingly, her baby, Rosie, lived. Um, though she had a lot of surgeries to uh, remove bone from her. I'm guessing some of the pieces mm-hmm. of her mother or anybody else who got blasted hit Rosie. But she did live. Mm-hmm. Some of the children who were saved from the initial blast were hit by the car explosive projectiles. One old boy named Cleo Clayton, he was eight years old. He was hit in the stomach by a bolt and it severed his spine. Uh, Cleo lived and was conscious and he was able to talk to his family for the next seven hours until he uh, fell to his injuries. After the police and the firefighters arrived, they were like, we, you guys kind of have this handled topside. Like people are, the neighbors, the, the, the community is trying to save the kids. So they go down into the basement and they find a second bomb on the other side of the school. This appears it's attached to a time device and they immediately go, everybody's got to go as far away from this building as you can. In that basement, they find 300 additional pyrodol that hadn't exploded, oh 10 God. burlap sacks of gunpowder, 204 sticks of dynamite all planted in the floorboards like throughout the building between the basement and the first floor all interconnected through wires that were connected to two hotshot batteries with a timer set to an alarm clock they weren't sure if it was just badly put together i do not think it was Hmm. everything else this man did went off and went off without a hitch. He was probably planning it for later at night. Oh my God. Well, what it was though, was that I think the first, a lot of people think of the first explosion shook something loose with the wiring. Hmm. And the second bomb that was 504 pounds of explosives never detonated. Oh my God. Could you imagine? That? He intended to take down the entire building, the entire block the entire fucking that the town. building was on. God. All the houses around it, the neighbors, he was taking them all out. Yeah, he was with the whole town down. <laughs> like, it, it, this, I said it would have, oh, just an outlandish amount. Like, that's just pure luck that he didn't think about the fact, because it, it seems like he would have timed it probably like, <sighs> this is a thing that terrorists do. And I'm, I'm going to say this. Um, so what you do is you set a bomb. Mm-hmm. And then you wait for the first responders to come. Yes. And then you set a second bomb. That is what Andrew Kehoe prepared. He This was like a terrorist attack that he planned for this town because he couldn't pay his bills. Because mm-hmm. that would have killed 
the rest of the children there, all of the parents who came to help, police officers, everybody, if he had just scheduled it a half hour later. Because then a half hour after that, he showed up in his car. So, yeah, he was ready for it. Yeah, yeah, so it sounds like it was 9.30, 10, 10.30, where all of the planned attacks, boom, 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 take out almost all of Bath Township. So what they had to do next was meticulous work, because here's the problem. Dynamite, back then, very volatile. Mm-hmm. So they had to, piece by piece, pull these electrical wires out and dislodge the dynamite from the blasting caps. And mind you, there are still children in the rubble. There's still a roof sitting on top of those children Mm -hmm. or a section of the roof sitting on top of those children in the rubble. After they do that, they say, okay, rescue can continue. The roof is still a problem, though. It's too heavy. Eventually, they use axes to cut holes in the roof. They thread metal cables through those holes. And then two separate teams of men heave a section of the roof off of the victims through like a weird sort of tug of war with gravity. There were people beneath that roof who were still perfectly fine, though. Oh. They they found... They still continued to find more people. By this time, doctors had come and set up a small like triage spot on the hill for people who were a little hurt, but not like devastatingly hurt. Mm -hmm. Ambulances were showing up. Pretty much anybody who had a private vehicle in town were using it to take other wounded people to two different hospitals in Lansing. Which for people who don't know, that's the capital of Michigan. Mm -hmm. By the end of the day, there are 37 children and three adults who are taken to the hospital. The count of children who die is 38 and four adults are taken to town hall, which becomes a makeshift morgue because they didn't have a space big enough, which also frequently happens when crimes like this happen. Mm -hmm. The state police then went to superintendent Hayek's house to make sure that Andrew didn't plant a bomb there either. Right, yeah. They start working their list, their way through the list of everyone Andrew Kehoe could have blamed for his financial woes. A school board member, as they're talking to the police, goes, holy crap, I saw Andrew this morning. He was mailing a package at the post office. So they track this down and they find the slip that says that he's mailed a box to a man named Clyde Smith in Lansing. Smith is an insurance broker who hadn't really had too many dealings with Kehoe, but considering who mailed the box, everyone's freaking out, and there's a massive hunt to figure out where it is. Right. Nellie's family is in a panic. They can't, they don't know where she is. They know her house is gone. They've called everyone that she could have known in Bath or Lansing, and they pretty much resolve by the end of the night that Nellie is probably in the house and Andrew killed her while she was in the home. Huh. Uh, firefighters go to the house and it is still burning hot. That's one thing people don't realize. And I didn't learn until much later in life. Like the fire stops, but like everything is still oh, fire. giving off this immense heat oh, yeah. for a very long time. So they show up with two chemical trucks, douse the entire house 
and they begin trying to sift through stuff to find Nelly, but it's still too hot for them to work. So they just go, we have to come back. The search mm. for the re- for any more children go into the rest of the night, but they do not find any more remains. Um, the total death count, including Andrew, Nelly, and Hayek, and the car bomb victims is 48. The Associated Press reported that of the hundred and some odd families of the community, there was none who did not lose a child or relative or friend by the fiendish handiwork of Andrew Kehoe. The following day, they come back. They find Nellie's body. But she didn't die in the blast. Of course not. I knew it. Andrew had actually bludgeoned her with something. They said the back of her skull was crushed. Then he put their marriage certificate and some of Nellie's treasured items on her corpse, covered it in lighter fluid, and lit her on fire. So this was done well before. The firefighters go into the barn and they're just appalled. Andrew had tied his horse's legs together with wire so that they couldn't escape. Oh, come on. And he had specifically dynamited his gas powered tractor, which was his like his baby. Yep, his baby. <laughs> Every building on the property was burned except for the hen house. And that wasn't because he hadn't tried. They found a bomb in the hen house, uh, an older type of bomb, like a kerosene bomb mm-hmm. that hadn't detonated. Bro, come on. Then a team of firefighters, as they're walking around his property, find one final message from Andrew Kehoe. On a fence at the edge of his property is a wooden board with big, bold letters that says, Criminals are made, not born. He'd even used a stencil to make it. The same stencil that he used on that box that he mailed to Clyde Smith. Which they located the same day that they also discovered Nellie's body. Mm -hmm. It had been shipped to Langsburg instead of Lansing. Ah. But there were no explosives in it. It was all of the school board treasury account books. The checkbook, canceled vouchers, deposit books, insurance policy stuff. There was a typed letter that began, I am leaving the school board and turning over to you all of my accounts. In the letter, he lists all the, like, itemized stuff that was in the box. Mm -hmm. And then he mentions that something was uh, cashed at the, or something was deposited to the bank that he hadn't been able to add to the books yet. And therefore, his ledger was off by 22 cents. Oh, no. I actually, like, saw the letter that I I looked at. I found the, like, oh, my gosh. Oh, no, only 22 cents. This typed letter that he sent with this box. The city had to conduct the funerals and shifts to have enough space and hearses to accommodate the dead. It took three days total. They did 11 funerals on Friday, 17 on Saturday, and the final seven on Sunday. A few funerals were doubles, as three families in town, the Bromants, the Halls, and the Bergens, had lost two children. And one family, Eugene and Irene Hart, had lost three. Mm. Nellie was taken to be with her family in Lansing, and she was buried there. The scraps of Andrew were put in a pine box and left in the Mount Rest Cemetery in St. John's. It was put in the most remote area of the graveyard and covered very quickly. There was no one there to mourn Andrew and not even a pastor wanted to speak at his grave. By the time the graveyard keeper arrived for work that day, even he had no idea where Andrew Kehoe was buried. It is an unmarked grave randomly in this old graveyard. Across the U.S., Kehoe was... Heavily discussed in the news. He was the mad butcher of Bath, the dynamite-obsessed murderer. Nobody really referred to him by name at that point. Um, 
Also, another really awful thing happened, which was that even back then, people were obsessed with death. And the same day it happened, people showed up before they had taken away like the exploded car. Mm -hmm. People showed up to like collect scraps of Andrew Kehoe. And like one guy, like they said, leaned over like through the like window type area and clipped a piece of Andrew's intestines, put it in a jar of alcohol, closed the lid and like walked away. Um, that Sunday, 85,000 people showed up to pretty much just kind of gawk at this town that was in like deep mourning. Hmm. They also took bricks and like mortar from the okay. site. Okay. Yeah. Well, so Monty Ellsworth decides he's going to put together a book. Um, he sold it for a dollar fifty. It discussed the school when it was built. It had a, a short little section on Andrew Kehoe. It also named and told the backstory of every victim. He was like, screw it. You're going to show up for money. Here you go. Um, it listed like the names of all the children, what they like to do, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So the most interesting thing that I would say that happened during this was that even though like just as quickly as America was obsessed with uh, Andrew Kehoe and him being the dynamite obsessed fiend, the articles have the most Fun headlines, if you look them up, um, was that just as quickly as we talked about him for a couple days, Mm -hmm. people also moved on to the next big story. And that next big story was that Charles Lindbergh uh, flew the spirit of the St. Louis. And that happened literally like three days later. So it also wasn't that quickly before we moved on. (laughs) How little... A little our attention span. They're like, this is exciting. And that's what people always talk about. They're like, oh, now in 2020, people are so short minded. I'm like, three daters, three days later, after the biggest, most horrible massacre of children outside of like things that happened during like the Trail of Tears and certain indigenous schools. Yeah. The worst thing that happened, we're like, oh, look at this guy. He's flying. Yeah. Like, he's <laughs> just going to move on to something not that serious. Thanks. Yeah, that's a flight from Long Island. Uh, so, yeah, that was that was the big thing that happened next. I hate people so much. <laughs> oh, my God. But the thing is, Bath didn't forget. Mm-hmm. State of Michigan began sending money to town. It's it's kind of, like, sad and awful and also kind of sweet. So little kids across America learned about what happened at these other kids' school. And they started sending, like, their pennies and nickels Aww. to Bath Township okay, to help the kids in Bath. Within a week, they received over uh, $7,500. And uh, actually, uh, it was Governor Green who was there. He had just been elected. So this was, like, gosh, a lot to deal with. Yeah. And some of, like, celebrities sent money and things, and they were just, like, rebuild the school. Um, After things died down, there were legal proceedings that all covered. They talked about what we just talked about. Mm -hmm. A jury did find that Andrew Kehoe was sane, and he was definitely a murderer. Yep. Uh, People tried to understand his motives. Some said he was always a monster, and no one had just seen the signs. Some say he lost his way. The priest and the religious said he lost sight of God. Other people just said he was crazy. The new school for Bath was finished in the summer of 1928. It was dedicated on Saturday, August 18th, exactly 15 months after the first school had been destroyed. And it was named the James Cousins Agricultural School. 
and cost $100,000 to build. It had a huge, beautiful gym, a library with oak tables and chairs, rooms for home at classes and sciences. Awesome. In the foyer was a small statue created by local artist Carlton Engel, and it was paid for by those donations sent in by thousands of children in Michigan. It was a bronze sculpture of a little girl holding a kitten in her arm, a tribute to the many young children lost and the innocents lost with them. That building was torn. Uh, it actually stayed there. The J- James Cousins School of Agriculture was there until 1975. Mm. It was torn down and replaced by a $2.3 million high school. Oh, wow. Um, two years later, at the 50th anniversary of the Bath School Massacre, they decided they were going to hold a graduation ceremony for the high school students of 1927 mm-hmm. who didn't get to actually graduate because the school was busy dealing with the tragedy. So several very elderly men and women crossed the stage as a class of 1927. Um, this year was the 94th anniversary of this crime. Oh my God. And if you bear with me, I would like to say the names of the victims before we move on today. Yeah. Go ahead. They are in order that they were assumed to have happened. Starting with Nellie Kehoe, 52, Arnold Burrell, 8, Henry Bergen, 14, Herman Bergen, 11, Emily Bromond, 11, Robert Bromond, 12, Floyd Burnett, 12, Russell Chapman, 8, F. Robert Cochran, 8, Ralph Cushman, 7, Earl Ewing, 11, Catherine Foote, age 10, Marjorie Fritz, 9, Carlisle Geisenhaver, 9, George Hall Jr., 8, Willa Hall, 11, Isla Hart, 12, Percy Hart, 11, Vivian Hart, 8, Blanche Hart, 30, different Hart, H-A-R-T-E, not the same family, but Levere Hart, 9, Stanley Hart, 12, Francis Hopner, 13, Cecil Hunter, 13, Doris John, 8, Thelma McDonald, 8, Clarence McFerrin, 13, J. Emerson McDoff, McCoff, sorry, mm, J. Emerson Medcoff, <laughs> I was messing up the D and the C, 8, Emma Nichols, 13, Richard Richardson, 12, Elsie Robb, 12, Pauline Schertz, 10, Hazel Weatherby, 21, teacher. Elizabeth Witchell, 10. Lucille Witchell, 9. Harold Woodman, 8. George Zimmerman, 10. Lloyd Zimmerman, 12. Uh, next were those killed by the explosion at the Keos car. Cleo Clayton, 8. Emery Hayek, 33. Andrew Kehoe, 55. Nelson McFerrin, 74. Glenn Smith, 33. And then our last victim was Beatrice Gibbs, 10 years old, who died later in the hospital from injuries. Mm-hmm. And this was all taken from America's First School Bombing by Arnie Bernstein, Maniac, the Bath School Disaster, and the Birth of a Modern Mass Killer by Harold Schechter, uh, the, Bath, the Bath School Disaster by Monty Ellsworth, uh, Evil Remembered. 89 years later by Judy Putnam uh, through the Lansing Street, uh, Lansing State Journal. It's very interesting. I didn't know that this was 
what it was. And I sure enough didn't realize it was as bad. Uh, if you happen to be in Michigan or about 50 miles away from Lansing, mm. uh, there is an area near the school that is an empty field that has a plaque that lists the names of all of the victims except for Andrew Kehoe. Of course. Because <laughs> no one cares about that. No. Oh and, my God. Uh, yeah. That was a tale. I did not expect. It was a rough time. Yeah. Yeah, it was bad times. All bad times. Every week is a bad time with me. This is true. Bring all the bad and somehow times. you all are still here. <laughs> but it is, you know, it's important. It's really interesting. Like I said, uh, Andrew Kehoe planned that that murder out like a terrorist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That is intense. That's what we call domestic terrorism. Mm-hmm. And to think that the first instance of it was well over, well, a little over. It's almost 100 years. Almost 100 years ago. Yeah. Oh, goodness gracious. What do you have for us today? All right. Let's try. <laughs> Let's try to um, brighten the mood a little bit. Okay. So there's. T minus two weeks until Halloween. Well, that's right. More like 10 days, I guess. I don't know. Whatever this comes out is like 10 days. Whatever. I say that like I don't know when it's coming out. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I've got a story to tell you tonight. Uh, It's a story about a doll. Yes, a haunted doll. Oh, yeah? Yes. I Uh, know so many. Uh huh. This is a uh, one that I truly believe to be a possessed doll. Really? Uh huh. Uh, possessed by something. I'm not sure what, but it's something. Uh, what do you think it's possessed? What What's the name of this doll, Brian? Uh-huh. <laughs> Hold on. So you know, just by just by looking at this doll, you could just just okay. I've seen pictures of of her and you could just tell like there's something a little bit off about said doll her you say yes her does it start with an a no (laughs) that's a real one i'm never doing that yeah that's very overexposed (laughs) right now Um, what's her name okay so tonight i will be telling you to tell uh peggy the doll oh a lot of people might know about Peggy, the doll. Well, maybe you'll tell me something new about Peggy. Possibly. Um, it's also, uh, I guess, a disclaimer. Um, but to whoever's listening to this part of the podcast, mm-hmm. if you like want to, you can go and look up pictures of Peggy. Go You're ahead. right. Peggy's wrecked. Go 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 ahead. Um, I'm I mean, gonna look her up again now. No, don't. I'm gonna look her up now. Um, but I think I remember this doll. But disclaimer: if you look her up, you you may have there may be some adverse uh, effects to looking at her picture. Okay, well now I'm not gonna look her up. And that's why I said no, don't do it. You um you might suffer from like some nausea or like a headache or migraine, some chest pain, something like that might happen. Okay, I'm gonna look. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> 
so just i i warned y'all so if you want to go look go right ahead go look her up i'm pretty sure like her she's it's a cute little doll Ooh, she's like there's a whole book about her did you read this book i did read the book <gasps> now is it free on, listen if it's free on it's kindle not. I mean, it might well, be because I pay for Kindle now. It is zero dollars on yep, Kindle Unlimited. You, you should ask me about these things. I pay for <laughs> Kindle Unlimited. My my library is just full of true crime. That's all I do is just read books on Kindle Unlimited. Oh goodness! Could have saved you ten dollars. It was. I'm already paying. It was ten dollars. Oh, it's ten dollars now. <laughs> oh, no, it was three dollars when I bought it. <laughs> oh well, it went up. So apparently, I guess. Oh well, you were probably researching this well before Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> and people now are probably trying to get their spooks, so the price jumped up. <laughs> That's all right. Let's talk about Peggy. Okay. So anyway, on with the story. I disagree that she looks terrifying, though. She does not. She, she looks, looks cute. Yeah, she's cute. She looks like almost like an American Girl doll. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> I know your daughter got some of those, doesn't she? No, not anymore. She, really? She messes them up. Oh, yeah, they are expensive. Well, she did mess them up. Yeah, and we're just like, no, no They're more. They're too expensive for you to be throwing those around. Exactly. Uh, so source of this uh, part is Peggy the Doll, a very different haunting. It's by Jane Harris. Now, Jane has been a paranormal investigator for over, I'd say, right, roughly like 20 years. Oh, cool. Um. She has a husband, has two kids. She has, she has that busy mama life going on. Um, on September 9th, 2014. So, to preface this, this all takes place between 2014 to 2015, 16. Um, so, I feel like I might have been hearing about this like you might have when it was happening. You probably had. So, I probably don't know the outcome, though, because, you know, it's one of those things that, like, it pops up on the blog. I'm pretty sure you do And then know nobody outcome. fulfills... Finishes the ending. I know you know the outcome of this. <laughs> All right, let's see, let's see. Was Peggy one of the ones sold on eBay? <laughs> no, but we'll tell you. Because there were a lot of dolls sold on AB- eBay for a couple years. We'll, we'll get to where she at. Okay. Where she at now. Okay. Um, oh, wait. Is she with my boy? Shut up. Is she with my boy? <laughs> we'll get to where she's at At now. his shop in Vegas? I'm taking you there. We are going to Zach Bagan's museum. <laughs> we'll get to where she's at later. All righty. Um, but yeah, this takes place between 2014, 2016, um, and it takes place in the UK as well. Okay. Uh, okay. So September 9th, 2014, Jane is, you know, she's, you know, doing her daily stuff. She's checking her emails because she runs this, uh, haunted, I guess it's a haunted doll type of thing. Um, There's a investigators. lot of like haunted doll museums. No, it's not a museum. It's like they, they do researching there. They research them. Oh, so they are seeking out yeah. destruction. Yeah. <laughs> haunted dolls, haunted like entities, haunted like objects and stuff like that. I'm not a real big fan of haunted entities. Little objects. I don't like it. It's, eh. But, I don't um, like the idea of bringing anything in my house that can cause a stir. <laughs> the, 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 the land itself is already cursed, so I'm not going to bring in anything else to curse me. It's true. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, she's checking her emails, you know, for anybody, you know, for her junk mail and stuff like that. She gets an email, just one email this day, and it says, um, just doll on it. And I do have part of the, the email. So it's, nice. it was in, it was in the book. Um, so she did leave a little part of the, in that book. So I'm going to read that to you real quick. Yes. So it's it starts, dear sir slash ma'am, uh, madam, I am writing this in the hope that you can please help me. 
I have reached the point now at which I can't carry on this way. Let me just let me just explain that I have always had a huge belief in the paranormal and the idea that spirits are all around us. I didn't know, though, that they could affect the living in the way they have been affecting me. I can't talk to anyone about this, as I'm sure they will think I am crazy. Mm -hmm. Some days, I wonder if I'm crazy myself. I have a doll here, which I am sure is causing my house, maybe even me, to be haunted. If I hadn't lived through it for the last few months, I'd think that sounded completely insane. I read that you have a lot of experience, so please reply and tell me what I should do. The doll is no longer in my house, and I won't have it in here. Mm. I can't sleep at all, and today is now the fifth day that I have been awake. No sleep at all. There is a figure that comes to me at night, stands at my bed. It's dark, a lady, I think, but doesn't speak or move. I end up frozen in bed in fear. I try to put a cross on my wall and pray to Jesus, but it doesn't help. Please come soon. And it's uh, Jane uh, took her name away, so she, you know, she wanted to keep. So they do know who it. They, they yeah, yeah. Jane knows. Okay. Yeah. So they just left the initials JW on it. Okay. So now reading that, you're probably like, "Damn, this lady needs help. No sleep, five days. Yeah. She, she's probably like." seeing stuff she shouldn't be seeing anyway because of right. the sleep deprivation and all that stuff. <clears throat> but Jane decided that this needed immediate attention. So she wrote back right then and there saying that, hey, when can I I can come there later this week? Yeah. Okay, Jane. Let, let's go. Let, let's get this done with. Um, to the rescue. Yeah. So she heads out there. With her husband, Simon, and their psychic medium friend, uh, Hazel Myers. Okay. They arrive at the woman's house, and you can tell just by looking at her, she's visibly, like, exhausted. Just like, you know how I look whenever I work, like, a very, very long shift, (laughs) and then I go to do, go to, like, um take my kids to school, and then I'm just up for, like, the rest of the damn day. That one day we tried to, like do two podcasts in a row yeah that yeah that day we were racked that that's how I, that's how she i'm free i'm guessing you had gone to work looked. it was like six in the morning it was, it was like seven in the morning we were trying to like record two podcasts back to back after your work that mm-hmm. was awful yeah is that type of exhausting but worse never again never fuck again <laughs> okay so at this time the doll didn't have a name so she just called the doll right now. Does she know where the other lady got it from? <sighs> no, she's got her. It's, it's basically, Peggy's like kind of like a hand me down. Okay, from, so she got it from somebody else. Yeah, she got it from somebody else. Basically, yes. So the, I'm guessing this new woman was not informed. Yeah. That Peggy came with a, a history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, like the letters, like the email said, Peggy's not kept in the house. Um. But it was still, even though it wasn't in the house, it was still keeping her up at night. Yeah, it was still on the property, though. Oh, okay, so okay. It, um, Fun question here. Yes. So, I wonder what, like, the ghost doesn't know your property lines. <laughs> so, in a situation where, say, there's a duplex 
Could the ghost just be hopping in between both houses? I don't care. It's all my property now. If I think a duplex would count as like, yes, the same property. Right. Like, so, or well, even like a set of row homes. Could there be a whole group of houses along a whole street and they're just all getting haunted little by little? You mean like roaches? <laughs> like how roaches Yes, like how holes? roaches go between walls, <laughs> between a whole row of houses or mice. Oh my God. Could the ghost just be like, listen, I know that I came here with Susie, but there's I, all these people I could haunt. I don't think that's, I don't think so, because ghosts usually have like that anchor to that one place. Mm-hmm. So they're probably just stuck in that. Because my thing is like, if a property was a certain area a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. it could be completely okay, see, chopped up. No, that's different. Yeah, because sometimes um, I love to watch uh, Amy Allen mm. on and uh, sometimes the the guy who's also on the show, the former cop, he will ask questions and he'll be like, hey, this is my my client's property. Like, mm. can you tell me what happened on their property? And the historian will be like, well, nothing happened on your client's property. But, but literally, like, what is the equivalent of four houses down the street? Something really bad did happen. Mm. And so I'm like, technically, that whole area is like. It's the same property. Yeah. Like, it's like. Okay, I like bringing up poltergeist, but it's kind of like poltergeist. Okay. Like, you think of it, they 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 uh, exhumed all these headstones and they right, they... and they never pulled all the bodies. Exactly. So there was the whole area where the cemetery was. Exactly. I haven't seen that movie since I was a child. So like that whole cemetery that they that was were traumatic in. for me. Yeah, that was terrible, especially that last scene when she's in like the the whatever the pool they were the making. The pool area is and the part that messed me up too. And those were real skeletons. They were I don't know real if skeletons. anybody knew that, those were real skeletons. Hey. Because at the time Poltergeist was filmed, it was cheaper to buy a real skeleton from a body company than to purchase a replica. Do you imagine that? Oh my God. That's terrible. But yes. But back the- on our point. Sorry, we got off, that we was real off topic fear. when we talk about ghosts. I'm so sorry. I just, so interested. <laughs> no, but it's, it, yeah, it is. Um, and like, so that's what I'm saying. Like, like what area like so they put it in like a shed outside peggy's like nope still you yeah basically. and also like the other question is i guess like because you know there's fixed like what do you call them like um attachments mm-hmm. that happen with entities so like maybe it doesn't matter where you put that little doll maybe she liked jw yeah she it who knows what entity i don't know yet but so yeah uh peggy was kept in like a little shed in in her backyard like oh, a nice. brick shed and so Hazel, the medium, mm-hmm. she is the first one to step inside of the brick shed. And as soon as she steps inside, one second, two seconds, she back outside. Nice. Okay. Okay. <laughs> she's visibly shaken and she has her hand to her temple. Like she has like a massive headache. She's wobbling. She's about to fall over. Yes. Also, I will say this. Now, this is pretty relevant and this is something the Warrens have also said ghosts as in human entities mm. do not inhabit items this is true they cannot so at this point we're already well aware of the fact that we are discussing something that is a non-human potentially otherworldly creature yes cool all right we're all on the same page here <laughs> so yeah she's about to pass out fall over just from that like brief experience of her walking in there wow <clears throat> So, like like I said, she experienced nausea, headaches. It was bad. So, Jane 
is tasked with going in and retrieving it all. She looks around. She can't really see it. And she sees this, like, rolled up now, looking. Did it say that Hazel was a physical medium or? Oh, I am not sure. Because physical mediums get a whole extra. It's worse. Mm. Um, They're feeling like things versus um just talking two things i know she's a feeling thing okay so she's a probably a physical of... medium and that's rough like from what i understand from what amy allen said physical mediums like die earlier mm. because they are experiencing the whatever the person mm. went through or the entity is trying to express to them it's like oh i died from like a gunshot wound a medium walking into that space mm. might feel that gunshot so, like, you can only imagine how taxing that is on a person's body. Right, right. So that might be why she felt so bad so quickly, if that's the kind of person she is. Yeah. Or the kind of medium she is. I'm pretty sure that's not why. No. <laughs> okay, so this was just a straight-up attack. Okay. Um. So, yeah, Jane goes into the shed. She looks around. She sees this little, this rolled-up red carpet-looking thing on the floor. So she's just basic psychic medium, then, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Okay. Um. So she picks up this thing. She's like, she assumes that this is the doll. It's um, bigger than she thought it would be. She takes it out of the shed. It's wrapped up in a blanket, not a uh, carpet. Okay. Um, and, and she kind of like, what? It's like a quilt. Yeah, basically. She 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 exposes the face, like half of half of the face. You can see it has blonde hair, blue eyes. I wouldn't even have done that there. I would have <laughs> taken that thing home. As, in the safety of my area that I have, like, you know, saged and salted, I would have done it there. Yeah. Um, She's too anxious. Yeah. Uh, as soon as, like, she does this, and, like, no, as soon as she brings her, as soon as she brings the doll out, JW sees it, and she's, like, she's visibly, like, shaking. Aww. She's frightened of this doll. Poor lady. And she's like, no, no. <laughs> and she sees her face, and she's like, oh, I'm done. Um, and Poor JW. Jane, at this time, starts to feel weird. Okay. Different. She um, starts to have a migraine as well. Oh, she starts getting a headache, uh, lightheadedness. Uh, she gives the doll to her husband to put in their car. Mm-hmm. And then she and Hazel walk the owner into her house so they can go have a conversation about what the hell's been going on. Um, basically, like she said in the email, all the stuff that's been happening, you know, um, I feel bad in those situations because those are people who are not actively seeking this out. Right. Like, I'm be real honest. Help. I've watched, you know, our boy Zach Bagans for a long time. You're <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I love, listen, I don't care. I love Ghost Adventures. I don't care. But I've been watching it for a long time. And in the beginning, I did a lot of, like, yelling and inciting action towards them. Mm-hmm. So when you are yelling at a spirit or some sort of entity and it attacks you or attaches to you yeah. or bothers you when you go home... I don't feel bad for you because you asked for it. Exactly. 
But I do feel bad when somebody's just moseying about doing whatever yeah, and they're just like, life. whatever. My neighbor gave me this doll after she died. And I was like, oh, it's kind of cute. So I'll put it in my little spare bedroom on the little <laughs> rocking chair. And now you're just experiencing hell. I feel bad for people like that. Yeah. You, you walked into a spiritual situation and you were not ready for yeah, it. Not prepared for it. Um, so after another interview, Jane asks, you know, GW, if, if they want to be kept updated. And I would have said absolutely not. Go <laughs> on, girl. Take that thing. She goes, moving. that doll nearly ruined my life. I want to forget it ever existed. Yep, I feel you. I, I'm, a, I'm with her. I'm with her. <laughs> and I hope God protects you all. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so Peggy has new owners now. Yay, right? Mm, Peggy is about to, you know. Do do what it do. Yeah, she, about she, to do what it do. So you know, they take her to their back to her research. Here's my thing: just because you research doesn't mean you can withstand the onslaught. That's what I'm waiting for. It, it's it's going to happen soon. Um, so you take her back to the research lab. Run you know run a basic text. You do the EMF readers and stuff like that. Blah right, blah right. blah. Um, but they're a little apprehensive of like doing a seance with this doll um yeah i would not right away what or like actually communicating with it like it no it takes a while well, like it, it's my thought process with that is you're not communicating with the doll you're communicating with an entity yeah they, they didn't want to they didn't want to communicate with any whatever was connected to the doll. yeah and so, that's smart and um no not really because peggy's like i will not be ignored oh <laughs> so it they, so they have her for like about a month and a half and they you know they haven't run any like seances with her okay so you know like, peggy's like pissed yeah but that's so dangerous yeah and she would know that like being a researcher mm -hmm. so it's a it's a month and a half later and boom jane is sick okay with an illness like she's just she's just ran down okay um no one can understand what the hell's going on with her mm. they think maybe it's the doll so you know hazel offers to take the doll away from jane for like a little bit jane's like no 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 no, not yet <clears throat> i'm gonna go talk to this local medium like clairvoyant and see what she has to say because you know she, she's local so she books an appointment with this local clairvoyant. Her name is Patricia Patricia Redmond. Okay. Um, and so Jane goes alone, sort of. She, <laughs> she brings Peggy. Never with her. alone. She brings Peggy with her. Peggy's always with you. And sort of that because she leaves Peggy in the car. Um. Did she tell the lady about what the situation was going on? I don't think so. She was just <sighs> going there for a reading. Just right, so, okay, she was trying to get a cold reading, but so, still... Yeah, no, she went there for a cold reading, and she went under uh, underneath uh, a, a different name, too. So just they didn't know. Exactly. I get <laughs> it, but, like, also, that lady isn't prepared. Because you never, like, look, we're talking... This is a Houdini times right now, but we're still talking, like, like people, mediums and stuff like that, they're still, like, you know... They, they don't tell the truth all the time. Sometimes. No, I, I believe they, they, in mediumship, like, but I also understand that a, a lot of people who are seen as mediums are very good at reading the room. Yeah, this is true. And telling people what they want to hear. Yeah, exactly. So, she meets up with Patricia. And Patricia goes, hey, you know, you can tell your friends 
friends, they could come in too. <clears throat> it must be code in your car. Ooh. <laughs> James like, um, I came here alone. And Patricia goes, No, you didn't. You drove that black four by four, right? There's a man and a woman that came with you, right? And James like, that's my car, but no one came with me as long as far as I know. So it it was um an awkward silence for like a second, I'm guessing. And Patricia she starts to experience a headache, lightheadedness. She, she, you know, she puts her hands to her head. And she's and then she goes to the window, and she's like frantically looking out the window to, to see where the fuck the black four by four is at, so she can see if there's actually like somebody in the car. And then she turns around to Jane, and she's like, "I'm sorry, I cannot read you today. I go to my receptionist and get a refund." <gasps> Ooh. <laughs> Oh, oh, that's always the worst. That's that's a bad sign. <laughs> um, so yeah, but after after this, she knows she doesn't go back to Patricia, but she she gives it all to Hazel, and Hazel takes her for like four days, and then after miraculously, Jane feels better. And throughout this whole time, as I'm writing her name down. I keep trying to write J because her name is uh, spelled J A Y N E. Mm-hmm. I keep adding the R to the N. J A Y N E R. Like if I Jainer, because my last name. Is oh, <laughs> it's Joiner. I'm just used to writing. Oh, jeez. With the J A with the. You're looking Y-N-E-R. at your notes and going. Jainer says yes. I had to keep you like scribbling out because I did it multiple times. Oh gosh. Mm-mm. So as most paranormal investigations investigators go, Jane wants to share the case she's working on with you know her her paranormal community. Okay. Right. So she posts a picture of the doll on her website about hey I'm working on this case this, this haunted Does she doll. Say anything else about it. She just says about this haunted doll that was afflicting. Uh, I'm not sure what else she says about it, but you know, she just posts a picture of the doll. She probably doesn't leave them. Yeah. Um. Good choice, bad choice. Who knows? Um. In the first 24 hours of posting the photo, their website was sent over 60 messages from people. So normally, their website. It's like our podcast website. Uh, we don't get a lot of emails from our podcast website a lot. A lot of the times, unless people go there, they know to go to their website right, to right. email us. Like her, 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 her website email, they didn't get a lot of hits except for like once, you know, once in a blue moon, blah blah mm-hmm. blah, here and there. This day, they got sixty messages the same day, and then after that, I think they got thirty messages the next day, and it just kept coming. All of them. Sounding very, very similar. Headaches, nausea, unsettling feelings. The doll. So, just from looking at this picture of the doll. Uh-huh. Just by looking at her. Okay. So, in the picture, the doll is wearing uh, a cross. And some of the people who emailed Jane, they kind of, like, expressed, like, 
I don't know, a, an irrational need to just remove the cross from the doll. Mm-hmm. or just wanting the, the, the cross to be off the doll. Okay. And, like, some of them even said they had dreams of the doll and that the doll just wanted them to... They didn't like the cross on them. Okay. Interesting. Yep. So, March 16. Here's another story. March 16. <laughs> I'm ready. I like it. Jane is headed over to Hazel's house for a reading with Peggy. Uh, she takes, so she takes this video and she posts it on Facebook about, you know, she's on her way. Peggy's in like the passenger seat. You can see her with her head towards, like just looking towards the camera. <laughs> it's creepy. It's a creepy looking fucking video. Okay. Um, so after she posts it, a woman named, uh, I think Kat- Catherine. Okay. Uh, Reddick. Reddick. Reddick um, sounds right. I think Reddick, Reddick. I think it's Reddick. Um, she comments on her post, and <clears throat> I have a picture. Uh, I, have, I have the post. Hold on. Yes. <laughs> and what she says is, "Hi, what's going on with Peggy?" So at this time, they found out the, the doll's name is Peggy. Uh, by doing a reading, um, they they could tell there's this there's a spirit of a woman inside the doll. And her name is Peggy. Okay. Or she likes to be called Peggy, at least. It likes to be called Peggy. Um, it may be a spirit of a woman. It's they say that, but you know what you know what I mean? And yes, there was a male a male spirit too. That's yes. what I'm thinking about. Yes. We don't know about that. That it presented as a man and a woman. Yeah. In the car. Mm-hmm. It might have been just something else connected to the doll. Or it might have been a lie. This is true too. Slight my girl Amy Allen again. <laughs> just, look, who knows? Listen, she says some really interesting things while she's doing these like readings around the house. Mm-hmm. She says that the ghosts or the the creatures she sees sometimes present themselves in different ways to her. They don't always look like what they really are. Right. So, like sometimes that's all demons. Some yeah. entities will show up extra scary, trying to scare her, and <laughs> she's just like, "I know you're a person." And other times she'll see things and they like skitter around the room and other sorts of creepy things. Yeah. And they are being themselves. But some of those things that are meant are, are creepy looking try and present more like humanish. Humanish because they want to stay. Yep. So I'm like, is this thing pretending to be a people? I'm pretty sure it's pretending to be people. Because it's been around people. Mm-hmm. We're just going to be a nice, normal couple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we just died and we just want to live in your house. That's all. That's all. Let us stay, please. So this message, this post goes, the post thread, whatever it goes, is from Catherine. And she um, says, hi, what's going on with Peggy? My heart is racing so fast and I feel dizzy. I'm in pain. And this is to the video that she just posted. And she replies again. She says, after I saw your post, it vanished from the site and my phone went crazy. So she initially posted a video first. And then it, I guess the Facebook, I don't know what happened. It just vanished. And then she had to post it, repost it again. Oh. Yeah. That never used to happen. That only happens now in 2021. <laughs> yeah. The day before there's a 
federal investigation into Facebook. (laughs) But back then, Facebook never went down. That was the big selling point because MySpace used to go down constantly. The selling point of Facebook was Facebook is always online. Yeah, but MySpace, you could do so much on MySpace. I'm surprised that no one uses it anymore. Whatever. Anyway, and then Jane replies, I know the first vanished, question mark, question mark. And and Catherine replies, yes. And then Jane's like, she's affecting people currently. I'm trying to get to the bottom of it all. And then Catherine's like, my heart is like racing, a, a racing horse. Mm. Yeah. Um, so. James, like, maybe take a break from the Internet. Maybe <laughs> you take a break from your computer. Maybe that's, you know. And then she heads to Hazel's place for the reading. Um, Hazel's like, as soon as she gets there, she's like, Hazel's like, it feels like. It's not her exact words, but it's like they're poking a bear, a sleeping bear. True. Like, you know what I mean? Um, I agree. And they're saying. Here's the question, though. You said Peggy will not be ignored. Yeah. So. She likes attention. Right. So are we poking a bear or are we giving the bear What what it wants? It seems like, like you said, when Peggy was left alone, all of a sudden all this weird stuff started happening. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So I'm guessing the attention is what she needs, but she, I don't know how she doesn't, she's like, (laughs) well, maybe the attention and people looking is what taking a little bit of energy from the people around her to allow her to manifest. That's probably what it is. Can't manifest if nobody's here for me to leech energy off of. Yes. She's kind of like, oh God, I was about to say something. I I just lost it. What she was like, huh? goodness like a vampire no like not probably like a psychic vampire more mm. more more like a psychic vampire because she, what she does is do psychic attacks on people so i'd say but psychic vampires they don't attack people they do but they don't it's it's complicated whatever <laughs> <laughs> so their seance takes an hour right mm. Nothing else happens the rest of the day. Blah, blah, blah. The next day, Jane finds out that, you know, Catherine, you know, the one <clears throat> from Facebook, she suffered a heart attack. <sighs> within that could that, be why her heart was racing. Within that hour of uh, Hazel and Jane's seance, she suffers a heart attack. Luckily, she didn't die. She's fine. Um... But this is another case of like a psychic attack on someone that's not even in the same vicinity of Peggy. So she can like attack from. I get where we're coming distance. from here. Yes. But that one's one that the skeptics could go, yeah, but what if she's going to have a heart attack anyway? <laughs> what if she worked herself up being afraid of this doll? And that added to her agitation and heart racing. You know what I mean? Okay. See, yeah. Okay. Okay. Because like you can work yourself in. Listen, I have been so afraid. Like my first time I ever sold any jewelry at a like physical sale. Mm. The night before I had the most head splitting awful headache. It was just nerves. Yeah. So. It's like a panic attack. Yeah. So, I mean, like that could also be a thing too. Like these people are reading about these things and they're making themselves sick. Because you're scared of it. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Sorry. Just being a naysayer for no, a moment. No. Hey, you got to have it. Oh, by the way. Yo. Sorry. Off topic again. 
I just watched for the first time BuzzFeed Unsolved. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. The the people who they say were like? Yeah. Which one am I supposed to be like? You're Sh- supposed to be more like Ryan. Oh, okay. You're Shane. <laughs> I'm Shane when it comes to aliens, apparently. <laughs> that I'm just not willing to accept the fact that everything is aliens. Everything is aliens, Brittany. Everything is not aliens, Brian. <laughs> everything is aliens. <laughs> and that every time you're like, well, sometimes people think that it could be aliens. I'm like, why? It could just be a ghost. <laughs> like, I'm a little bit more towards the the... The believing in the paranormal than Shane is. He doesn't believe in anything. Yeah, I know. But when it comes to the the thing that irks me is that when in doubt, it's aliens. And I find that really upsetting with the paranormal community. Like everything can't be aliens. But continue your story. Oh my God. Okay. So I have a part of, uh, in in the book, there's like a part of one of their seances that they had with Peggy. And I uh, did like a couple of screenshots of it. It's ba- basically I screenshotted the ones when she was actually like communicating with them. Okay. So, um, this one goes. He uh, the 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 one running the the uh, seance goes. Was that you, Peggy? And there is a clear yes response via the pendulum. Um, he then proceeds. Through a series of questions, while confirming that the rest of to the team that the that the figure is still present next to the altar, um, so they use they call it a pendulum board okay. divination. Mm-hmm. I, I'm guessing it's kind of like a, a, a Ouija board. I don't know, whatever. Yeah, I'm not familiar. Yeah, I gotta look it up. But these responses are given in capital letters, so. The first question is, do you fear crossing over into the light? And it spells out, no fear. There's a pause for three seconds, and it says, next, as in next question. (laughs) And then this next question was, are you happy to be communicating with us? And then it answers, happy. Okay. And there's a pause for 10 seconds, and it says, more. (laughs) And it's like, Peggy, were you responsible for a recent health problem? And it says no. And, it's a, and then they ask, uh, are you aware of the lady we mean, Catherine? And then she says, yes. And then there's a long pause for almost a minute. And it spells out weak. And they're like, what do you mean, Peggy? And like, take care. Heart help. And... They're like, were you trying to help? And she goes, yes. And like, do you feel like you have a purpose here? And she's like, yes. And there's a little pause. And she's like, I know. And it was like, what do you know, Peggy? And she goes, too much for me. Mm. And yeah, then uh, it's it basically after that stops communicating for a while. Mm-hmm. And then it picks back up and spells out a name, Lindy Harry Green Star Soon. And then they're like, can you be more clear, Peggy? Is this a warning? And she's like, yes. Okay. And they're like, Peggy, do you need our help to move on? And she's like, no. And she's like. She just pause and is like, tell them. And then the the runner, he's like, tell them what? 
And she goes, oh. And after that, she kind of went silent for like the rest of the reading. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure what she was trying to get out of that. Get them to say. Get the medium to say. Yeah. So it's kind of, I don't know. It was just, it's just weird, but it's also fucking fin. Like, it's interesting. So interesting. This is not aliens, by the way. Thank <clears throat> goodness. <laughs> now, Miss Peggy didn't only affect people. Oh, no, no. Um, <clears throat> pets wouldn't take kindly to seeing pictures of Peggy at all. Oh, fun. Yeah. A lot of dogs freaked out by looking at her picture. Um, but one, but this one, it's an extreme case. Okay. Um, so there's a email mm -hmm. and it says, in April, I was watching a video of Peggy with my dog next to me. And about 10 to 15 minutes after I viewed it, my dog suffered a seizure. She had never had a seizure in her whole life. I took her to, I took her to the vet and we couldn't find any reason for her to have had a seizure a seizure. seizure. <laughs> the I'm vet, sorry, I'm not making fun of you. It's fine. No, yes, it's okay. I am. I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm sorry that I'm doing it. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> the vet checked her out completely. He ran a CT scans and MRIs on her and couldn't find anything that would cause her to have a seizure. She came home and was completely normal again. No lingering signs of her seizures until I watched the video again. For some reason, I watched it again. Um, and almost immediately, she had another seizure. That's what finally flipped the switch for me. That's what flipped the switch for you? That's what finally flipped the switch for me. That it had to be Peggy. Twice I watched the video and twice she had a seizure right after See, she has passed since she has since passed away, and it filled a connection between Peggy and other dogs behaving oddly, and what happened to my baby to be too strong to be a coincidence. And this is from uh, Joan Cobb from Phoenix, Arizona. Okay. So yeah, um, she's I don't know. Just so dogs. here's a question. Yes. Did Jane keep this doll like at her house? At whatever research site they okay, had. Okay, so not, never in her own house. That's I'm not sure smart. it was at her own house because, yeah, she has two kids there, and I'm pretty sure the kids would probably definitely be in that. And they kept her, like, they kept her in, like, a locked case, of course, mm -hmm. until they wanted to, like, bring her out. <clears throat> so, here's what you might know. April 2015, Jane gets an email, right? It's from Aaron Bengston. Okay. Do you know that name? Is that Aaron from the show? Maybe. Basically saying, I'm a producer in New York, and I want you to be on my new show. Oh, different Aaron. Uh, Maybe? She, she, has a, she has a meeting with Aaron and another producer, Casey Dale. Okay. Uh, they tell her about the show. It's called Deadly Possessions. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's episode three of season one, if you guys okay, want to yeah, watch it. I definitely it. have watched this. Um, then they're like, do you know what Ghost Adventures is? 
Of fucking course, everybody knows what Ghost Adventures is. Yes, yes. And they're like... Let well. the hate flow through you, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> and then she goes, well, Zach, or when they go, Zach wants to uh, meet with you and Peggy. <sighs> and then she asks, well, isn't Zach like terrified of dolls? He does not like them, but he puts up with them. And then... You know, I forget which one answers, but then they're like, yeah, but he likes to face his fears, though. He has a room full of them now, apparently. Peggy's in there. He likes to face his fears. I'm pretty sure Peggy's in there. To get scared. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of little weird ones in there, too. I think she has her own room, actually. Oh. She has that. There is a room, though. A room of, like, a whole wall full of dolls there, from what I understand. God damn it. I just spoiled something. Okay, anyway. Anyway. That's still cool. Anyway, fast forward to the day of the shooting. Uh, Zach sees Peggy. You can tell he is visibly uneasy when (laughs) she comes into the room. He can... You can even describe it as shooketh. This man was shooketh. That's your favorite word. It is. (laughs) There was, so there was like a small incident with her cameras. I guess um, they set her down for like a second and her camera like like turned off mm-hmm. and like malfunctioned. But other than that, nothing really. It was like, a, it was just a basic like normal Zach bag and, bag and show. Um, they did like a little seance with her mm-hmm. at the and like, you know, during it. Um, so fast forward again. Show airs. Guess what happens? Everybody's upset. <laughs> Twitter blows up with people complaining about how Peggy affected them. Nice. Um, I have some of the tweets from the book. And it says, one user says, after watching Peggy the doll, I got severe pains and had to go to the hospital. I felt a pressure in my head slash dizzy and a warm blood rush. From my head to my toes after looking at Peggy at all. Look, I read this how they write it, and people don't, commas and shit don't exist so half, the, half the time. <clears throat> and another user goes, okay, well, watching hashtag Peggy the doll last night, my mother suffered an aneurysm. She's in the hospital right now, was during the seance. Um, Jeez. Another another one goes, my head is just pounding. I felt you, Zach, with my with the anger for real. She is pretty powerful. So I'm guessing through throughout that she was not having a t- good time. <clears throat> so much a lot more happened after this. Like this book is only a hundred pages, mm-hmm. but a lot more happened during the time. So when did Jane decide to get rid of her? So, I forget what, I'm pretty sure it was like 2015, mm-hmm. um, like a little bit after, you know, the airing and stuff, Zach catches up with her. He mm-hmm. Like they, they regularly email back and forth, you know, just keeping tabs they on They like Peggy. ghost stuff, they're both ghost searchers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm guessing beforehand he had offered to take her, but Jane's like, no, nah, not right now. So... <clears throat> He emails her, and then she's like, she's just like, she's like, maybe I like, because he wanted to, he wanted to talk to her about something. So she's like, okay, well, 
I'm not sure who this is because this is a different email to, than what you've been using. So she's like, can you like call me? And he's like, yeah, I could do that right now. And then like, she's in the UK. He's in Las, Las Vegas. So different time zones. It's like 12 a.m. his time. And it was like 8 a.m. her time. She's like, how about like later on in a day that you can call me? Okay. Like when it's like morning your time. Um. So they discussed this and basically she she gives she hands Peggy over to the Zach for his museum uh safekeeping I guess you know she, like I said she has two kids and you don't want to have that kind of spirit energy around you especially mm-hmm. that heaviness and that's just weighing down on your basically your relationship with your husband and your family you're just like Ugh. no so she now resides in Las Vegas Zach Bagans Haunted Museum. Yeah. Yeah. She has her own, She like, like I said, she has her own room. Uh, she has cameras on her all the time, I guess, for that attention that, god damn, she's an attention whore. That's, I kind of want to say that, but she's not. She just wants people to, like, not ignore Whatever me. Whatever this is there. I mean, every yeah. day you get a whole stream full of people. Exactly. Walking by. Yeah. Talking to you. Yeah. So, yeah, he'd offer, like, he, he just emailed her and offered to take her off his hand take her off her hands and she's like you know what <laughs> now might be a good time to do that <sighs> but yeah that's where peggy's at now and eventually look if we have to go to fucking las vegas <laughs> we can go to las vegas i'm absolutely here for it oh goodness i will go if it means I can just go there to see Peggy and then just pay my respects to Peggy and say, hi, Peggy, how are you doing? And not <laughs> anything else, just hi and bye and keep my keep walking. And There's so many it. other things we could look at there, too. This is true. Doesn't he, have, he might still have a divot box there. I don't re- I don't know. I know that when the the episode with the divot box was on that. He opened it, and that made the guy really mad. Well, yeah, you're a dumbass. I mean. <laughs> um, regardless, though, thank you so much for listening as we learned about Peggy. Yes, I hope you guys enjoyed that one. I did like, I liked researching that one a lot because I had heard about it a while ago, and then I was like, you know what? I'm going to. I, I, that's going to be in my pocket, too. <laughs> for Love while. it. But yeah. I <sighs> well, hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh hope you enjoyed the rest of it. Yeah, always two. listen and follow our Patreon. You yes. can always find me on Caught Podcast on TikTok. Yes. There's now a very lengthy backlog of hmm. podcasts. If you'd like to go back and listen to any of the old ones, some people tell me, someone told us that uh, in our email that they listened to the whole thing while they were moving one weekend. Oh, right. Yes. So how cool is that? That's, that's crazy. Like, I'm glad. Thanks for listening. I do appreciate it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for listening, and you have a good night. Yep. Good night.